Hi, my name's Josh, and welcome to Polemic, a podcast for followers of Jesus Christ who want to win the war for truth against their enemy, Satan, the father of lies. So today we're going to be talking about, again, the fall of Satan. And last last episode we talked about um, some exilic prophecies, um, just as an illustration of this idea of partial and full fulfillment or near and far fulfillment of prophecy where you can have a prophecy in the Old Testament that is partially fulfilled um, multiple times even and then is will eventually be fully fulfilled at the end of this world. <clears throat> um, and so the reason that I think it's important to study this topic in scripture, the fall of Satan, um, is really just this, to have a grasp and understanding of what power God has given Satan over the world right now, okay? Because um, obviously that's where all of Satan's power comes from, but it's important to recognize um, just how much power God has given him so that we can understand, you know, what do we need to, uh, concern ourselves with, not like be afraid, but what, in what ways do we need to resist the devil? Because in what ways is he active? Um, and so when we talk about the fall of Satan, we're really kind of usually talking about two things. One is sort of a a moral fall, like humanity had, um, a fall from being the perfect righteous creation of God to being sinful. Um, but then we also mean something else. We mean a literal fall from power and from place in heaven to the earth. Okay, so the traditional view is um, essentially that Satan was um, like this chief angel dude in God's presence and that he grew proud and wanted to be higher than God and so he led a rebellion against God with a third of the angels and then they were all cast out of heaven um, which would be the fall of Satan and they were banished from there um, and then sometime after that that's when Satan goes to deceive Adam and Eve okay so that's kind of the traditional view, um, which I think if you look at the, at scripture, it's pretty easy to see that some of that is not completely accurate. Okay. And, um, ultimately I believe from looking at scripture that Satan has fallen morally, obviously he's the enemy of God. Uh, it is true that he's proud and wants to be higher than God. Um, but there's not a lot of evidence in the Bible that he has been um, been banished from uh, heaven already. And in fact, there's some pretty strong evidence to the contrary, that he still has access to heaven um, and is there commonly. Um, and that's important to recognize because what we're really trying to figure out is... How much power does he have in heaven and how much power does he have on earth? Okay? Because kind of this traditional view says that 
he's not allowed back in heaven anymore because he's evil. Um, and there's kind of three main passages that are where that view comes from. That's Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and Revelation 12, uh, which we're going to dig into a little bit. Um, but first I just want to, um, go to Job, the beginning of Job real quick and Revelation 12 and just kind of look at, well, what are, what's some evidence that Satan still has access to heaven? Um, because some of these passages, when we read them, it can kind of be automatic to just interpret them as this sort of allegorical history of what happened before Adam and Eve when that's not necessarily clear in the text, actually, and we're reading it into it. Um, so in Job, um, this is in both, the same statement is repeated in Job 1 and 2. Um, and of course, at the beginning of Job, we have this scene where Satan comes to God in heaven and he is accusing Job um, and testing him. And this is a great example of, um, you know, Satan really fulfilling one of his major roles in creation as the accuser. Um, and so in Job 1.6, it says, Now there was a day... When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with among them. And then Satan and God start having this dialogue, and Satan accuses Job of only loving God for the money, pretty much. Um, and so right here, it's clear in Job that Satan does have access to heaven. And if we skip forward to Revelations 12... Um, which is kind of the big Satan's fall chapter, um, the clearest one at least. If we skip forward to that um, and read... Okay, so there's a lot in Revelations 12, a lot going on, and I'm not going to dig into all of it. Um, but if you look that they're down in... Um, Verse, starting in verse 7, this is kind of the clearest description of the fall of Satan in Scripture. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Okay? So at this point, we definitely know who this person is. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Okay, and so this clearly is describing a 
um, banishing, a revocation of Satan's right to be in heaven. Um, but what's really key about it is that it's very clear that Satan has been in heaven accusing specifically Christians. Okay, so just like we see in Job, we have in Revelations this description of Satan being in heaven before God, it says, and accusing people who are followers of Jesus Christ. And then ultimately when he when he's thrown down, that is the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ coming. Okay, when God and Christ take out this big enemy, Satan, um, that is kind of the coming of Christ's reign. And you, you see, as you continue on in Revelations from there, um, that that's really what it culminates in. You know, this leads to the end of the world, pretty much. Uh, and so, I'd say it's pretty clear from those two texts that Satan still has a role in heaven of accusing um, God's people, okay? So, he hasn't been banished from heaven. Uh, and he doesn't isn't fully banished from heaven until you get to the end of the world when, after he's been accusing the saints, which is in the description here in Revelation 12, that's people who believe in Jesus Christ, um, he's, he's cast out after he has already been accusing them. Okay, so it's, it's clear here that it has to be at least after Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Um, and I would say it's pretty clear because the, the events surrounding here, if you continue reading in Revelations 12 and 13, Satan's fall from heaven here corresponds with the indwelling of the Antichrist and his rise to power. Um, so while Revelations 12 is full of plenty of time-dilated gaps and stuff and is a really weird passage, I would say this at least is clear that um, Satan is cast down of out of heaven at the end of the world and not at the beginning of it. Okay? Um, that's not to exclude that he may have had a moral fall at the beginning of the world, um, which we'll see in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, they seem to be describing, um, but the actual banishment from heaven is, has not come yet. Um, and that's really important to recognize because Satan's primary role is the accuser of the saints or the accuser of the brethren. And he can't do that unless he can be in heaven with God accusing. So, um, if we turn then, or I'll, I'll just point out a couple things in here, in Revelations 12, in regards to the kind of orthodox view, um, this is the only place in the Bible where it explicitly mentions Satan by name in conjunction with him falling. So you could just note that. Um, also, this is the only place in the Bible where a third is mentioned in regards to Satan's fall. 
And that is a few verses earlier. It says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Um, and so that's where that belief comes from. I wouldn't say it's exceptionally well supported. Um, that sounds like it's more part of the war that is going on. Um, and that the stars, the stars is commonly used as a metaphor for angels, or at least it is. Um, and so it's understandable that, you know, to interpret that as angels, but to me, it sounds like he's attacking them. Um, so, I don't know. Regardless, um, we can look at Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Um, and these are really the, so the two, only two other passages that are interpreted as describing the fall of Satan. Um, though I would say when we're done studying these, you can see that there are a lot more, actually, um, than just these two. Uh, and so in Isaiah 14, uh, we'll, we'll just go through this quickly because there's not a ton here. But um, in both Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, it's describing um, foreign nations, okay? And it's describing the fall of foreign nations, nations which are have been um, enemies to Israel, okay? Um, and so, yet again, we have to remember here our hermeneutical principle of this kind of multi-stage fulfillment of prophecy that um, both of these prophecies that we're looking at, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, were fulfilled in history um, with these specific nations that are called out by name, but also that doesn't mean that they don't prophesy something further, okay? And I think we'll see that they do. Um, and so Isaiah 14... Uh, it's a, describing the fall of Babylon, um, which is a nation that has occupied Israel for a while um, throughout history. Uh, and the kind of key passage is in verse 12, where it says, and this is in the ESV, um, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you. And ponder over you, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert, and la la la. Um, it goes on and, you know, Babylon's destroyed. Um, and the kind of key two things here that people connect with Satan is, one, in verse 12, um, you may have a translation, and I... I'm sure the King James Version, at least, probably some other translations, they translate here, rather than saying, O day star, son of dawn, they say Lucifer. 
okay? Um, and that is from the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, because Lucifer um, and Daystar and the original Hebrew word here are all references to the planet Venus, okay? Lucifer is the Latin name for the planet Venus, which, of course, they would have recognized as a star. It's the um, one of the brightest objects in the night sky, and we, of course, know now as a planet. Um, and so Lucifer was not originally uh, a name for Satan, okay? It's only because this passage is interpreted as being about Satan that people then associate Lucifer with Satan, okay? Um, so Satan, Satan is not called out by name in this passage, um, and Lucifer is the name of the planet Venus. Those are, that's something key, key to notice here. Um, but then, you know, this description of wanting to be above God, that's kind of what we associate Satan with. So that's why this passage is interpreted in that way. Um, but notably, that's also what Babylon is known for. Going back to its origins in the Tower of Babel, um, you know, that's what the, that's what the people said. They said, we want to ascend to the heights of God so that we can be like him. And they thought they could do that with brick and mortar. Um, so that's Isaiah 14. And we'll talk more about Ezekiel 28. And what we say there will be applicable to Isaiah 14. Um, but Ezekiel 28 is really interesting. Um, and I would say here we need to remember... Um, couple hermeneutical principles. One is, of course, the uh, near and far fulfillment of prophecy and um, the just maintaining an idea of context. So let's talk about the context of Ezekiel 28 real quick. Um, the immediate context is um, the... Uh, it is Israel's fall to Babylon. Okay, so Isaiah 14 is after Babylon has um, occupied Israel and then fallen. But Ezekiel here, Ezekiel is written right at the beginning of this Babylonian Babylonian occupation. Okay, when Babylon is taking Israel over and uh, exiling them. And this is happening around... Um, like 500 something BC or like 600 BC. Okay. Uh, and so what we have happening in Ezekiel here in the passages preceding Ezekiel 28 is it's going through all these nations who helped in Babylon taking over Israel or rejoiced that Babylon took over Israel, um, and that are happy that God's people are falling, okay? And it's going through these nations and condemning them, and prophesying their destruction, and saying, because you rejoiced over Israel's fall, or helped take over Israel, I'm going to destroy you, because they're my people, okay? Um, and so even though God is judging his people, he's still... And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. He's still 
has a covenant with them, and he's not going to give that up. Um, and so Tyre is a nation that's a little bit to the northwest of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea, um, and Tyre, it describes in uh, Ezekiel 26, it says, um, Because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gate of the peoples is broken. It has swung open to me. I shall be replenished. Now that she is laid waste, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre. Um, and that's the same for Moab and Seir, Edom, Philistia, Egypt, um, Ammon. So, and this is coming right after Ezekiel 24, which is a siege of Jerusalem, when Jerusalem falls. Okay, so that's kind of the both historical and biblical context here, is that we're talking about a whole list of nations that um, God is going to destroy because... They put themselves over and above Israel. Um, and another another thing to note about the book of Ezekiel um, in the historical context here is that um, unlike some other prophetic books like Jeremiah, um, the events that Ezekiel is prophesying and commenting on actually are occurring throughout his life. Okay, and so there's this kind of cycle throughout Ezekiel where he will prophesy something, it will happen, and then God will give him a lamentation over that event. Okay, um, or he may even be describing these events as they are happening, um, and that's what we that's what we see in. Um, Ezekiel 26 through 28 here with the fall of Tyre is that this is this is an event that actually occurred during um, during his his life Ezekiel's life because we can it's re- it's really interesting um, the book of Ezekiel throughout it whenever a word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel or most of the time it will give us a date in reference to the beginning of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and from that, we can figure out within a year or so um, when each of these prophecies was given. Okay, and I don't remember if I put in my notes here. No, I don't have my notes when exactly this one was. But um, the actual siege of Tyre by Nebuchadnezzar occurred around, um, it started around 586 BC and ended in 573 BC. Okay. And we know that from other historical sources other than the Bible. Um, and this prophecy to Ty- against Tyre actually occurs slightly before that. So it's not too much longer after Ezekiel gives this prophecy that it is immediately fulfilled in history. Um, and let's read what the prophecy is. Um, oh, and let me, let me just note, so... This is why in Ezekiel we see some prophecies in future tense and some in past tense, okay? Because these events are occurring um, very soon after or during the time that Ezekiel is speaking here, um, not all of the book of Ezekiel is in 
future tense, many of the words from the Lord are in past tense, where it's describing events that have already happened or will happen soon. Okay. Um, and Ezekiel 28 is one of those. Uh, so, let's see here. Um, 26 through 27 are kind of just all about how, which is, the, this is the case with lots of these, you know, same with Isaiah 14 with Babylon. Um, God is saying, you were a great nation, you were great in these ways, but now you sinned and I'm destroying you. Okay, so that's the basic message of 26 through 27 and 28. Um, and so in 28, there's a couple, um, there are kind of two sections of it. One is the word of, it says the word, and 28 verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God. Okay. And then, um, and that is a prophecy against is the heading that the ESV set has, which means that it's in future tense. God's saying this will happen to you. And then the second half of Ezekiel 28 is a lament over the king of Tyre is ESV's heading there, which they're commenting on the fact that it is a past tense. And it says, moreover, the word of the Lord, this is in verse 11, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Um, and so what's interesting there is that we have this first section that's to the prince of Tyre and the second that's to the king of Tyre, okay? And I don't really know whether or not this is intended to be to one person or to two people. Um, I don't think it's especially relevant. Um, but the second half of it, the address to the king of Tyre is what is most commonly associated with Satan, okay? And I'll just read that, uh, starting in verse 12. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And then in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst, it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth. In the sight of all who saw you, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Okay? Um, 
and a couple other key prophecies throughout here. Um, uh, we have. Okay, there's someone somewhere else in here. I think it's in 26, 27. I don't know. We'll forget about it for a moment. Um, and so the keys here, obviously, you can pick them out pretty easily, are you were in the e in Eden, the Garden of God. Okay, there's only really like four persons that we know of from the Bible were in the Garden. Um, it's pretty easy by deduction to say that this is Satan. Um, and then a guardian cherub, anointed guardian cherub. Um, this is really the primary text where we get the idea that Satan is an angel, okay? Or I'd say more specifically a cherub um, because those are two distinct things in the Bible which are not um, the same. Uh, and then... Uh, this description of his fall that he wanted yet again um, well in this it describes him being proud of his beauty uh, and says your wisdom was corrupted for the sake of your splendor uh, so we've got we I'd say I'll talk about it this way you know let's talk about the near and far fulfillment of this prophecy in the near fulfillment of this prophecy um, this is describing the nation of Tyre and its ruler, the king of Tyre. Um, and you saw a couple places in there it referred to trade, okay? And this was really the primary aspect of Tyrian civilization is that they were a, a trading nation, okay? They lived on an island in the Mediterranean Sea, a heavily fortified island, which was a great place to run the trade of the entire um, Mediterranean coastal area. Okay, and that's what they did. And so they were very rich from that. They even, um, in the 10th century, 10th through 8th century, they um, supplied a lot of the materials, or some of the mater materials at least, for the building of Solomon's Simple um, because they were, you know, that's what trades for. Um, and so, uh, but, the kind of the problem was is that uh, you know they were obviously an evil unrighteous nation and they exalted themselves above Israel as we see here um, and also um, kind of very interestingly uh, so in verse 9 of Ezekiel 28 it says will you still say I am a god in the presence of those who kill you though you are but a man and no God, okay? Um, and what what's interesting about Tyrian civilization is that their religion was actually very um, palace-centered, okay? You can look into the worship of a god named Melkart, M-E-L-Q-A-R-T, um, which this deity... Um, kind of rose in, in Tyrian civilization and displaced all the other gods. And 
it was centered in the palace, okay? Because the king himself identified himself with this god, saying that he was Melkart, and this kind of passed through the generations, um, because Melkart means king of the city, or lord of the city, okay? And so, when God is addressing these prophecies to the prince of Tyre and the king of Tyre, um, whatever exactly that means, he is definitely referring to this Melkart deity um, that the that the the ruler of Tyre claimed to be. Okay, and this god was associated with the sea and trade um, because that's what Tyrian civilization was about, um, and. So you can see in this, there's this exalting of oneself to the position of God, just like we have in Isaiah 14 um, with Babylon. And that is what the nation here is being destroyed for. Okay. And this is still in the, the kind of near historical fulfillment of this prophecy. Um, and in history, uh, you know, this is what actually happened. Ezekiel prophesies here that there would be a long siege, and I'm trying to find the exact verse. He also prophesies, um, that God would make, um, Tyre to be a, um, a bare rock that's only fit for casting fishing nets on to dry them out. Um, and I don't remember where exactly that is, but, um, uh, and so throughout history, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he has this big, long siege of Tyre, uh, as Ezekiel prophesied, which is like, it's like 10 years or something. Um, and eventually that ends. The best sources we have say that it's just like a, it wasn't a fully militarily successful victory, but eventually the Tyrians, um, they surrendered. And so Nebuchadnezzar occupies Tyre. Um, but then there's actually another fulfillment of this prophecy later on in history, um, when in the 4th century, Alexander the Great, he is um, really taking over all the territory that the Babylonians used to have. Um, and he comes to Tyre, and, uh, there is a few details, it's kind of an interesting story if you look into it, but, um, what's crazy about it <laughs> is Alexander gets really worked up, um, he spends yet another, like, ten-year-long siege, a little bit longer than that, actually, um, taking over this city, and he builds a whole land bridge out to it and then completely levels the city okay so he just scrapes the entire thing off throws all of it into the sea which is exactly what ezekiel prophesied here okay so in talking about this passage as a prophecy of satan we can't lose um, sight of the fact that it is also definitely a prophecy of this literal city um, that God did these things to because these people were wicked. Okay. Um, and, you know, there's, if you ask me, there's definitely, uh, supernatural things going 
on if we, someone spends 10 years trying to take over one little city. <laughs> Anyways, um, and since that point in history, just like Ezekiel prophesied, um, Tyre's civilization has never risen back to power. Some of its colonies were still powerful for various parts throughout history, but Tyre was destroyed and has never been has never regained its place of power. Um, so that's kind of the the near uh, fulfillment of this prophecy, but we can't get caught up in this dichotomous view that okay, well those things are fulfilled, so now we can tear them out of the Bible and we don't have to think about them anymore. Um, they have a, as we saw in Revelations 12, they also have a future fulfillment in Satan, okay? Because something that you have to catch when you're reading through these Old Testament prophecies is that every single wicked nation is a picture of Satan, okay? And in its rise and in its fall, it is a picture of Satan. So it is not surprising at all that we get to these two very key descriptions of evil nations that have risen to power and fallen that we would associate that with Satan, okay? Because he is really the one who has um, orchestrated that, orchestrated the rise at least. Um, you know, and these nations are really imitating him in trying to exalt themselves before God. Um, and so, in the description here, in Ezekiel 28, it really is difficult to say it's not directly about Satan, okay? There's a lot of metaphor used in Ezekiel, um, a lot of very colorful, interesting metaphor, including this Mount of Assembly that it talks about, and the Garden of Eden is mentioned in other places in Ezekiel, but it's very clear here that we're being that when it starts talking about this king of Tyre, it's no longer just talking about a man, okay? Um, and if we didn't recognize this concept of near and far interpretation of prophecy, you know, you might have to choose, well, is this about a man or is it not about a man? Um, but we don't. That's not how biblical prophecy works. Um, <clears throat> but... Uh, I would argue that, as we see in Job and as we see in Revelations, this fall where God um, destroys the guardian cherub from the midst of the stones of fire, that has not happened yet, okay? Um, that this is, this is not describing events which took place before the beginning of the world. Even though it is in past tense, we talked about that, um, that is in past tense because of the near fulfillment of it, and but it's still a prophecy for the future, okay? Um, and in the future, when it really is fulfilled, it will be past tense. Uh, and it's also describing the moral fall of Satan, which may have taken place in the past, um, if almost certainly, obviously. Um, but this physical fall of Satan that's describing, um, as is clear from Job and Revelations, you know, Satan still has access to heaven, um, and he hasn't been removed from there. Um, and so while 
Tyre has fallen. Um, Satan hasn't yet. Okay. Um, in a in a banishment sense. Uh, and there's one other thing to note about this passage. Um, and that is at the end it says, "You shall you have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever." Um, and of course. That was literally fulfilled in regards to the nation of Tyre. Um, but we also read in Revelations um, towards the end that that it will actually not be the case for Satan. Okay? So some aspects of this will be fulfilled in Satan, some won't. You know, Satan is not a trade power of the world. Maybe he's behind the trade powers of the world, but it's not his key aspect. And also, Satan will not be destroyed forever. He will be, uh, well, he, it's not that he shall be no more forever. He will be tortured forever, um, is very clear in Revelations. Uh, pretty much the one of maybe two clear references to eternal torture in the Bible. That is one of them, is Satan being tortured forever. Um <clears throat> So, to wrap it all up, um, I wanted to go through all these passages just to show, you know, where are the sources for the, um, oh, there's one other thing I want to talk about, isn't there? Um, there's this language of guardian cherub, okay? And if you do a word search, the word cherub actually shows up a lot in Ezekiel, um, because Ezekiel, okay, so... Cherubs, um, they aren't quite angels, okay? Because, um, you know, angels throughout the Bible, we have this description of them that, and the kind of classic view of them is that they are kind of human-shaped with wings, and the word angel, or in the Greek, angelos, um, is, literally means messenger, Okay, and so it's important to recognize that when we're talking about angels, it's not just a type of being, but it is also a job description that that type of being is created for, okay, um, is a messenger. Um, and here, Satan is not being described as an angel, but as a cherub, okay, which the primary references to cherub, cherubim, um, are these and guarding um that is their role is to guard god in a, in a sense um okay if you read at the beginning of ezekiel you see all these references to cherubim and um also if you read uh like exodus where it's talking describing the ark of the covenant okay the ark of the covenant um has these two cherubim on top of it which are, you know, kind of shaped like men um, with three sets of wings, and the cherubim, their wings cover over the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And at the beginning of Ezekiel, we read there's four cherubim that are always around God all the time, and you can also see them in Revelations. They're referred to as the four creatures um, that are around him. Um, one very weird thing about them is they are covered completely in eyes. Okay, so that's very different from 
angels that are covered completely in eyes, which I guess helps them guard better. I don't know. Um, and so here, Satan is being referred to as a cherub, uh, which is really interesting. Uh, and exactly how much you want to uh, derive from that, I guess you can. Um, it would seem, by the description here, taking at face value, that Satan, before he had a moral fall, fall was also in the presence of God all the time, like the other four cherubim that are mentioned in the Bible. Um, and what's just crazy is that even after his moral fall, God still allows him to be in heaven with him, um, which is a lot of forbearance and mercy on God's part for Satan that he allows, and you see this with all of God's enemies, that he has forbearance and mercy on them and allows them to continue to exist and continues to provide for them um, until he says no more, like he does in Revelations 12. Okay? And so I wanted to look at all these passages just to um, show where all this kind of uh, mythology surrounding Satan comes from, and also to talk about where, what he's up to right now, okay? And we see, even right now, um, he has not been cast out of heaven, and he is continually accusing us before God, which is why it's so important to have... Jesus Christ as your defender, because otherwise you don't have a defense in heaven. And when Satan accuses you, he's right. Okay. Um, so, sorry this one was a bit long, but next time we'll talk about something.